Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. While we know that homeopaths have been practicing this small dose or minimal dose since biblical days when Moses at Marah threw a tree in the bitter waters to make it sweet. Well, Dana Almond recounts this in numerous instances of homeopathy, its users, its supporters, and even those who are its detractors in his most recent book, The Homeopathic Revolution, Why Famous People and Cultural Heroes choose homeopathy. Dana has joined us over the years to talk about homeopathy, and this hour is no different. We'll find out what some of these famous people have said, why they've used homeopathy, and what it means for our present and future. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. What a lovely introduction, though. It's been a while. It has been a while since we danced. (laughs) I think a decade. (laughs) And I'm glad you used my word, nanopharmacology. I think it's a really good modern term to describe the small yet powerful doses that we use in homeopathy. Maybe we could start there. And I know you're the founder of Homeopathic Educational Services, which has done so much to help educate the people of the world. So thank Mm -hmm. you for that great service. Describe for our audience, for those that may not know, what homeopathy is and how it works. Sure. Well, basically, the underlying assumption behind homeopathy is an underlying assumption behind modern physiology, and that is that symptoms aren't just something wrong with a person, but symptoms are defenses. Symptoms are ways our body-mind is trying to fight infection and or adapt to stress. There is this inner doctor within us. However, too often, we take conventional medicines, which are very effective at suppressing the symptoms and pushing them deeper into the body. And although they do provide a really wonderful and helpful temporary relief, they do so at a bit of a cost. And that cost is an increase in chronic illness, an increase in immune dysfunction, and ultimately an increase in mental illness. Now, obviously, this doesn't make reference to every conventional medicine or every single treatment or anything like that. But the the premise is once you begin to disrespect the wisdom of the body, then you you lose uh, one of the great understandings 
of how to really heal people. And ultimately, what homeopaths do is we use these small doses of plants, minerals, or animal substances that will mimic the various symptoms that the sick person is having. For instance, one of the premises also in homeopathy is, is that no disease is local. You cannot just have heart disease as though it's just the heart that's the problem. You cannot just have skin disease. I mean, you could have skin symptoms, sure, but not skin disease because it's an internal disease that's just pushing through into the skin. And even a, a simple headache is not just localized to the head. It's a systemic disease that simply manifests in various symptoms, including head pain. So once you understand that symptoms are defenses and that we are this body-mind and you respect the wisdom of the body, you look for substances in, in nature that will mimic that wisdom, that will cause in healthy people the similar symptoms that you as a sick person are having as a way of, as Stuart Brand calls homeopathy, medical Aikido. And I like to call it, and Paul Hawkins and I both like to call it, medical biomimicry, where we're mimicking the wisdom of the body in order to initiate a healing process. Yeah, and when people have asked me using a, a radio um, example, I tell them, well, it's like listening to a song and just turning up the volume. And you turn up the volume so it'll be driven out of the body rather than turning the volume down so it goes deeper into the body. Very you know, if you, think, yeah, if you think about, you know, a fever is an important defense of the body. Uh, a cough is a defense that, you know, what is a common cold? Your body's fighting this viral infection. Many of the viruses die and some of our own white blood cells die. And the body secretes this liquid substance as a way of externalizing this dead matter and getting it out of the body. So if you take an, a cold medicine which dries up your mucous membranes, it disables you from creating the mucus, so you're not able to eliminate the dead viruses and dead white blood cells. And the irony here is, is that in conventional pharmacology, drugs are thought to have side effects. But from purely a pharmacological point of view, drugs do not have side effects. They only have effects. And we arbitrarily differentiate those that we like, and we say these are the effects of the drug. And whatever effects that we don't like, we call the side effects. Right. <laughs> Which is, it's, I mean, I, being a user of homeopathy myself for almost three decades now, when I hear an occasional commercial for this or that drug, and then they tell you, and side effects might be nausea, temporary blindness, shortness of breath, <laughs> yeah. call, your, call your physician. I'm thinking, well, what person would want to take something for something if it's going to cause all these other problems? But people do all the time. Right. And, it, and it's an acceptable form of experimentation. When I tell people that the majority of prescriptions given to people are for things they were never tested for, people are astounded. Yeah. In fact, I mean, most people don't know, for instance, that most drugs are not tested on children. Most uh, drugs are not tested on the elderly. And, uh, and then, of course, most drugs are not tested when a person's already on a drug. Right, exactly. And uh, last year, for instance, the every man, woman, and child was prescribed 12.7 prescription drugs. It's amazing. I haven't and, taken a prescription drug in almost 30 years. Well, I'm sorry to hear that because then someone else is getting your 12.7 drugs. A year. That's, yeah, a that's year. so extraordinary. And that Look, doesn't even include all the over-counter drugs. No, exactly. And, 
Well, let, uh, let me ask you, Dana, when you look at, because you've been involved now for quite some time <laughs> in, in promoting and bringing a greater appreciation and understanding to homeopathy, how have things changed? I mean, we've covered extensively over the past two decades the AMA's effort to destroy homeopathy and the things that have gone on politically and economically, but there is a change. Yes. Well, actually, there are many, many more changes happening outside the United States than in the United States. So one of the important things that is happening in the United States is the medical schools. Are Almost all of them are teaching this new field, which is called integrative medicine. Right. We don't, the, the words alternative medicine and complementary medicine are beginning to become passe, and the word integrative medicine is taking over. Uh, because, one, it's really hard to be against integrative medicine, where you're taking the best of the different natural therapies, the best of conventional methods. Though the bias in this integrative medicine concept is towards safer natural methods as a first and primary focus, and then bringing out the big guns of mm-hmm. conventional medicine if and when needed. Mm-hmm. But uh, back to what's happening throughout the world, I mean, right now in Europe, homeopathy is so popular, it's almost hard to even refer to it as alternative medicine. Something like 30 to 40 percent of French doctors use it, about 20 to 30 percent of German doctors use it, 40 to 50 percent of British doctors refer to patients to homeopathic doctors. Um, I mean, and the royal and, family and, uses well, homeopathy. Well, the royal family, of course, yes. And, in fact, uh, the royal physician even wrote the foreword to this new yes, book of mine. Yes, a beautiful tribute. Yeah. Now, when I even wrote the chapter in this new book about monarchs, I thought I was going to be focusing on the British monarchy. Mm-hmm. But I uncovered incredible stories about monarchs in France, including Napoleon III, uh, monarchs in Italy, monarchs in Belgium, monarchs in Norway. Uh, even the last reigning queen of Hawaii was a big advocate of homeopathy. And consistently, what I have found is many of the most famous and well-known cultural heroes of the last 200 years have been users and or advocates of homeopathy. The people that have the choice of whatever health or medical care in the world are often turning to homeopathy as a first and often primary method of treatment. Well, and I thought it was fascinating what you had to say about Charles Darwin. Yeah. And, maybe, and even Sir William story. Osler. Maybe t- tell our audience about Charles Darwin and homeopathy. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, his is an amazing story. As we know, he went to South America in the 1830s, and uh, he got so sick over there that uh, when he came back, from 1837 to 1849, he was sick as a dog. He was having chronic and severe nausea and vomiting. He was having heart palpitations. He was having dizziness and, and fainting spells and spots before his eyes. In 1849, he said that he was so sick that he could not work one out of every three days, and he was so sick that he was late to his own father's funeral. Okay. Finally, he ended up at the encouragement of a shipmate from the Beagle and a cousin of his to see this doctor who specialized in water therapy or hydrotherapy and homeopathy. Now, Darwin was extremely skeptical of homeopathy, but he agreed to take the homeopathic medicines that the doctor prescribed, even though, as he said, he didn't have an atom of faith. 
So this is now in 1849. He didn't write his book, The Origin of Species, until 1859, ten years later. I questioned if he would have even survived that long. Right. But within eight days, he begins to have a healing crisis. Within uh, a couple weeks, he calls himself an eating and walking machine. And although he ended up having his nausea and vomiting throughout his life, he never again reported having heart palpitations, dizziness, and fainting spells, spots before his eyes, or many of these other serious symptoms. Well, and I think the beautiful thing for anybody that has used homeopathy or who would like to learn more about it is you can use it safely, and and it's for different stages of, you know, three people in the household can all have a cold, but your remedy will be different. So you're not treating the name of a disease. You're treating, you know, the way a person feels at the time they're feeling it. Absolutely. See, the bottom line here is is that we might get uh, the same virus, but our body-mind has different strategies for dealing with it. And to think that your cold or your migraine or your PMS and my PMS or whatever syndrome you have is going to be the same as mine is sloppy, lazy, and unscientific thinking. So in homeopathy, we now use expert system software to click on what symptoms a person has. A person might have a headache in the front part of the head, not the back part. Uh, that's better by hot or cold applications, that might be better or worse by motion or lying down, that might be better or worse at a certain time of day or night or weather or, or food or drink. And then, and then you don't only just have a headache, you also have a whole variety of other symptoms that your body-mind is experiencing. And uh, although we tend to think of a person, let's say, with arthritis as having arthritis, and then separately they may have constipation, and separately they may have fatigue. So in conventional medicine, they treat each of these diseases as though they're separate entities. And that's just, once again, sloppy, lazy, and unscientific thinking. Well, and I think we've seen in medicine the specialization to the point that a person might have five different you know, medical, so to speak, experts trying to help them, but they're not talking to each other. And I mean, yeah. it's it's tragic to me. It's it's just a tragic form of what they call care. But to me, it's it's just sort of laboratory experimentation. And hopefully, people's bodies sometimes survive the treatment. I mean, I know the many shows we've done on cancer therapeutics and normative cancer therapy. They often talk literally about fifty percent of the people dying from the treatment, not the disease. But I want to come back, Dana, in your book. It's really wonderful. The homeopathic revolution. Why famous people. And cultural heroes choose homeopathy. Your book asserts that 11 American presidents used yeah. and are advocated for homeopathic medicine. Yeah. In fact, not only 11 American presidents, you know, several British prime ministers, including Tony Blair recently, mm-hmm. and Israeli, more, you know, a little bit in the past, also presidents of Germany, Mexico, Pakistan, Norway. Um, but the 11 American presidents, that begins with a story of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, talks about a, uh, a whole bunch of other people. Uh, but uh, I'll mention the part of the story of Abraham Lincoln that might intrigue you and your listeners, because it will give you a sense of the animosity that conventional doctors had towards homeopaths then and even sometimes today. But on the night that Lincoln was assassinated, 
historians note that this was a conspiracy. It wasn't just John Wilkes Booth involved. But one of his accomplices approached the Secretary of State, William Seward, and stabbed him seven times. He got into his house by claiming to have uh, delivery of a homeopathic medicine from his homeopathic doctor, because Seward, Lincoln's most trusted advisor, was a big advocate for homeopathy. And, in fact, actually most of the members of Lincoln's cabinet were also advocates of homeopathy. So what ends up happening, the closest doctor to Seward at the time was the Surgeon General of the United States, uh, Dr. Barnes. So Dr. Barnes aided in the treatment of our Secretary of State, and he was reprimanded by the AMA for doing so, that he would treat a homeopathic patient was considered an unethical law of the AMA. And you see, because, you know, in the 19th century, there were 22 homeopathic medical schools, Boston University, New York Medical College, University of Michigan, University of Minnesota, um, uh, New York Medical College was a homeopathic medical college. And so we were within the mainstream. Many of our patients were many of the literary greats, the richest families in America. So we were a threat to orthodoxy. And the only way they could deal with us is to say that if anyone refers any patient to a homeopath, then no other AMA member will can refer patients to them. It was a clever way to try and disable the referral processes or even having any relationship with a homeopathic doctor. Yeah, it's guild politics, you know, and, and the guilds are, are famous for um, keeping information out that, somehow or other doesn't benefit them, whatever guild it might be. If you're just joining us, our guest is Dana Allman, U-L-L-M-A-N is how he spells his last name. The homeopathic, <laughs> the homeopathic Revolution, Why Famous People and Cultural Heroes Choose Homeopathy. It's a North Atlantic Books. You can find more online at www.homeopathic.com. That's homeopathic.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Zohara Hieronymus. Dana Altman joins us, and we hear him. The Homeopathic Revolution, Why Famous People and Cultural Heroes Choose Homeopathy, is a North Atlantic book. You can also find out more online at homeopathic, that's spelled H-O-M-E-O-P-A-T-H-I-C, just like it sounds, homeopathic, Com. I, I'd like it if, um, Dana, you'd tell the story of Dr. Osler, Sir William Osler, because those of us that live here are see his name at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, where he became in 1889 the physician-in-chief, Dr. William Osler. That's O-S-L-E-R. I'm sure some of you have seen that. Sure. Uh, what was his connection to homeopathy? Well, uh, Osler is today considered the father of modern medicine. And he was the head of clinical medicines at, at Johns Hopkins at, at the turn of the century. Now, Johns Hopkins, as some of us may know, if you know American medical history, was considered the model of the Western medical model. And uh, Abraham Flexner, when he wrote his infamous Flexner Report, which tried to improve medical education, and the way it tried to improve it was to make it uniform. And he tried to make it uniform because at the time there were medical schools, there were homeopathic ones, like I said, 22 of them, 
And I, by the way, at that time, there was also Ohio State University, which had a homeopathic medical school, and that's a whole other story I'll tell you about later, perhaps. Um, and I said Boston University and many others. And there was osteopathic, there was naturopathic, there was also an eclectic medical, a lot of eclectic medical schools, which taught botanical medicine, homeopathic medicine, and conventional medicine. And uh, so what, what Flexer did is he tried to make it all conventional. And believe it or not, one of the chief antagonists to Flexner was Osler, because what Flexner tried to do in making it a uniform medical school education is to not have a lot of clinical training in it, but make it entirely experimental and entirely biomedical, entirely laboratory, entirely based on biochemistry and physiology. And it also assumed that you know people can and will have many diseases concurrently and that you treat the body akin to a machine. So uh, Osler, you know, did have a different point of view also on homeopathy. It's not as though um, he was a practitioner of homeopathy. He wasn't. But, you know, his, the quote that I have uh, from his farewell address as he left uh, Johns Hopkins and he went on to be a leading professor at Oxford University in England, he says this, it is not as if our homeopathic brothers are asleep. Far from it. They are awake, many of them at any rate, to the importance of the scientific study of disease. And he went on and on, and uh, he was even quoted in Time magazine in 1940 to say that no individual has done more good to the medical profession than Samuel Hahnemann, who's the founder of homeopathy. And Hahnemann, by the way, is the only physician in our own nation's capital to which there is a statue and monument. Oh, and, that's interesting. Uh, I wasn't aware of that. It was dedicated in 1900 by President McKinley, another advocate of homeopathy. And the uh, attorney general at the time was one of the keynote speakers. And um, it, it, it's at the corner of, or at the circle, of 15th and Massachusetts. Huh? Well, next time uh, I'm there, I'll look for it. It's even surrounded by ginkgo trees. So, oh, you know, it's, <laughs> I love the fact that it just happens to have ginkgo trees all around it. When you look at the, and it's a curious way that, not that the book is written, it's curious in the sense that you decided that this was the next step in your own sort of public effort to promote homeopathy. When you selected, I mean, you have famous politicians, you have sports superstars like David Beckman and Herman Mayer and physicians and scientists and and musicians, Beethoven and Barber and Yehuda Menuhin and Tina Turner and Paul McCartney and Ravi Shank. I mean, it goes on and on. Why did you decide that this was an appropriate way to promote homeopathy? Well, you know, believe it or not, the real instigating event was the passing of Coretta Scott King. When she passed away, the media reported that she was in an alternative medicine hospital in Mexico, specifically seeking homeopathic treatment. Mm-hmm. At that point, I literally threw down the gauntlet and said, that does it. This is just one more person who we all have an incredible amount of respect for, who had an appreciation for homeopathy, maybe too late in her life, but still an appreciation for homeopathy. And I decided to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I've written a number of other books that teach people how to use homeopathy. Right. And I thought that was going to be the way that people would really get the value of homeopathy. But all too often, people don't get to using it until they're convinced. Mm-hmm. So then I, I've written books that also teach people about what homeopathy is, and I have a special interest in the research side of, of medicine and science. So, in fact, there's much more research on homeopathy than people realize, and I thought that would talk to people. But for some people, the research side is too technical. Right. For other, for other skeptics, their attitude is, I don't care what research you do, I still disbelieve it. Right. And so that wasn't providing enough breakthrough information. And uh, I know that in my life, I like to know what other people do in their life to make it better. What do people that I have a lot of respect for in my life, what do they do to be at the top of their game? And homeopathy seems to be one of the things that, if you connect the dots of so many of these respected cultural heroes, that they add into their life. It was so interesting to me. I mean, you know, as I said, it's it's been the mainstay of our wellness um, for now three decades. And so when I was reading your book and seeing that all of these amazing people, particularly your spiritual community of people, I'm going, wow, all the people I've studied and read. (laughs) Like, this is just great, from Mahatma Gandhi to Paramahansa Yogananda. Um, So when you look then at, for instance, the current figures in the world that may be influencing who do you think um, our audience would have interest in wow that's a tough one i mean ultimately because you know i i do have chapters as you said on literary great sports superstars physicians and scientists corporate leaders and philanthropists you know uh, my chapter on clergy and spiritual leaders i mean i have seven different pope stories it's amazing well you know one I was also I... surprised, by the way, that you mentioned Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher yeah. Rebbe, who many of our audience have heard of, um, mm-hmm. was a big uh, proponent of homeopathy. Yes, I also was a uh, prescriber a bit for him at one point. Oh, you were? Um, and in fact, it was also a mind-blower for me to find a leading Muslim cleric who is not was not only a homeopath, he wrote a 700-page homeopathic textbook. How did you go about finding this out about all these people? I mean, I, you know, myself as a researcher, I know what I have to go through, but this is such a particular um, pursuit of finding that all of these amazing people, whether it was Dr. Osler at Johns Hopkins or, <laughs> or Ludwig von Beethoven, you know, who used homeopathy and spoke of it. You know, it's amazing. Every single person came from a different source. Mm-hmm. And so, and every person, there's a whole story behind how I find it, found that person. And in fact, I also have to tell you the amount of magic that I experienced right. on a regular basis. Once I made a decision to write this book, mm-hmm. a wind came at my back. Mm-hmm. And whenever I would be looking for something, someone would come up with this information and help guide me to it. Now, of course, I also am a diligent and scholarly researcher, and I can and, use, can and will use Google and right. different library resources. Um, but, but there's so many things that I had to find outside of the Internet. How did the writing the book affect you, Dana? I mean, uh, given, as, as you just said, you know, it's, I don't know how many individuals are in here, but we're talking about hundreds. Hundreds. Well, you know, I swear, like I said, ever since I decided to write this book, Mm -hmm. 
I have had magical experiences happen to me on a daily basis. And uh, I, I mean, and, and <laughs> I don't. There's too many to list, but uh, you know, e- even um, did any surprise I, you? Like when you found out that a particular person used or promoted homeopathy? I mean, Pope Leo the <laughs> Twelfth. <laughs> did that surprise you, or maybe I don't know, Florence Nightingale? Right, right, How right. How beautiful. Right. Well, the bigger, I mean, to me, that Charles Darwin story was a mind blower, yeah. and I had I had read about that earlier, but I didn't believe it. I just mm-hmm. didn't believe it. And then I actually went into Darwin's letters. I read a whole bunch of biographies, and I began to connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, at my website, by the way, I have some summary information about Darwin uh, and his experiences with homeopathy at, as you mentioned earlier, at homeopathic dot com. But one of the stories that also was a bit of a mind-blower was that of Moses. Now, you know, um, it it almost sounds like a joke to say that Moses was the first homeopath. But what he actually did when he came down from Mount Sinai and saw the Israelites worshiping that golden calf, what the Bible said explicitly and with some technical detail is that he smashed that golden calf, he ground it up, he threw it in water and then gave that water to the Israelites. Right. Now, we use gold as a medicine in homeopathy specifically for hopelessness and despair, want of meaning of life, and depression. And that's what his analysis was. Mm-hmm. And the Bible gets technical when they talk about him smashing the, the golden calf, him grinding it up. We use the word trituration where he, he powders it. Then, he, even though they're in a desert, the Bible says he threw it in water, that was an important part of it all, and then gave it to the Israelites. You know, there are other places in the five books of Moses which are homeopathic. If, if you recall, in, in principle, that if you were bitten by a fiery snake, you That's had right. to look at the staff with the fiery snake and That's you were right. cured. Even just, to, even just to look yeah. at the staff at of the, the fiery snake. That was the principle of similars enough. Or the uh, way in which you're purified. This was an interesting one to me, that those who made the ash from the red heifer, which is a material used to purify a person contaminated by the dead or by dead things, the person who makes it becomes contaminated, but the person contaminated is purified by it, (laughs) which is a complete true story of homeopathy. The homeopathic principle of similars, I also refer to as resonance. Mm-hmm. Resonance and similars are on a similar concept. And we know just from the music metaphor that a C note will be hypersensitive to other C notes, even at a distance. And if you also have respect for the wisdom of the body, you know then that, that the symptoms are actually part of our defenses. The word symptom itself means sign or signal. And our symptoms are doing just that. They're signaling us. And so we shouldn't simply get rid of the signal. We shouldn't suppress the signal. We should honor it and mimic it as a way of getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think anybody familiar with Mary Baker Eddy, founder of Christian Science, she was also a prescriber of homeopathy and That's right. so many others. All right, so we're going to take she, a little... She, she, by the way, mentions it in her famous book, Science and Health, almost a dozen times. Mm-hmm. No, it's, I mean, uh, it's just so important, and I and I think the general public has been 
unfortunately robbed of this great gift from God and from all the men and women who have practiced it and refined it as we do today. And um, I just encourage everybody to read The Homeopathic Revolution or at least go to Dana Allman's website, www.homeopathic.com. Our guest, Dana Allman, has helped some come out of the closet. In his book, The Homeopathic Revolution, Why Famous People and Cultural Heroes Choose Homeopathy, you can learn more at www.homeopathic.com or call one 800 733-3000. That's 1-800-733-3000. Speaking of coming out of the closet, I, I was so glad to see that you had a, a little thing there on C. Everett Coop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a mind blower. I met him at a medical conference and introduced myself and said that I'd written a number of books on homeopathy. I thought he was going to turn away immediately. He then reached out his hand and he said, you know, My family physician as a child was a homeopathic doctor, and it was his inspiration that brought me to become a doctor. And I looked at him dumbfounded and said, excuse me, Dr. Coop, but does anybody else know this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he replied back, he said, well, I wrote about it in my autobiography, which I got the next day. It's a famous uh, book called Coop. And right there he talks about his family physician, uh, being a homeopath, and it was his inspiration that drew him into medicine. So, uh, in fact, Coop later in life also wrote a foreword to one of the leading alternative medicine textbooks. So, you know, he is, you know, showing a special interest in this broad field by doing that. Yeah, it is definitely changing. Were there others? I mean, you shared with us learning what you did about Moses, about Mm -hmm. learning, you know, and we've told the story on this program, actually, of Abraham Lincoln in the past. Were there others that shocked you? I mean, I love the stories about Vincent Van Gogh. I mean, some would say maybe that was a failed homeopathic story. (laughs) Well, you know, the bottom line about Van Gogh is, is that, I mean, he was a sick puppy began before he began to seek homeopathic care. Right. Uh, but it, actually, Pizarro and uh, Van Gogh's brother brought him to Dr. Gachet, his homeopath. Uh, by the way, one of the most famous paintings of uh, Van Gogh was of his homeopathic doctor, Dr. Gachet, and it sold for $84 million. Mm. Now, mind you, uh, as my good buddy once said, well, imagine how much it would have it would have sold for if it was a painting of a real doctor. <laughs> I, I like I like that. <laughs> well, one of my other favorite painters is Gauguin, and I was so glad to read that. At, you know, not only was he Renoir. famous and precious, yeah, Renoir. Pizarro was the real. He he was the 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 grandfather, a godfather of the post-impressionist movement, and he was the strongest advocate for homeopathy. And if one of his artist friends we're going to go to Dr. Gachet or to another homeopath, then Pizarro himself would prescribe for, um, for the artist. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, that's what's so amazing about this book and uncovering so many stories of literary greats, too. I mean, uh, I have uh, an incredible story of you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and George Bernard Shaw and Dostoevsky and Chekhov. And, and then, of course, all the American transcendentalists. I mean, all the transcendentalists were advocates of homeopathy. 
And what's also interesting is... And then you, you also have some of my other favorite writers. I have to mention them because I love them so much. Johann <laughs> Wolfgang von Goethe. I sort of raised Goethe. my adolescence on Goethe. I don't know if that's well, good adolescent fuel, but it was for me. And you have uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he used to have... Actually, he was having seizures and a deep depression. And he went to the same homeopath that Darwin went to. So amazing. And that uh, Florence Nightingale went to as well. And then you have W.B. Yeats. Uh, I mean, all my favorite people. Yeah. And Goethe, in his play Faust, has Metastopheles at one point say, to like things like, mm-hmm. whatever one may ail, there is certain help. Mm-hmm. And that's the principle of homeopathy, treating like with like. Now, in conventional medicine... They use, of course, vaccines and allergy treatments. Two of the very few methods in all of conventional medicines that does something to augment the body's own immune and defense system. And what a coincidence. It's based on this homeopathic principle. Right, except they they deliver the real thing and and not the shadow or the etheric print of it. Let's talk for a moment, though, about the role of water, because, you know, in the stories of Moses and and Torah in general, water is the medium which carries the healing agent, and in homeopathy, too. So describe for us what modern research is beginning to understand about the power of water. Well, you know, what I'm going to tell you now is going to really blow your mind, because this is the newest thinking about how homeopathic medicines may work. The thing is, is that we always use the distilled water. Now we just double distill it to make it even more purified. And we make it in glass bottles because we thought that glass was inert. Uh, In other words, if you put it in tin or some other type of metal and you use a double distilled water, whatever metal you're using would go into the water. We didn't think that was true with glass, but in fact, Modern technological devices allow us to find that, in fact, as you shake uh, the, a, this double distilled water in a glass container, that little silica chips fall off the glass walls. And so just as the, just as the air we breathe has all these little, little, little microscopic particulate particles in it, water, too, is full of these uh, additional stuff. Now, a purified and or distilled water has considerably less. But what we're finding is, is that when, when these little silica fragments fall off the glass walls and infiltrate the water, and then when you put a plant, mineral, animal, or chemical in that substance to make it into a medicine, that unique plant, mineral, or animal interacts in a different way with the silica. And I think of those little silica chips in the water as storing information, as storing that particular plant, mineral, or animal, chemical substance you're making into a medicine and that changes the very structure of the water and it will not have any effect however unless the body mind has symptoms that resemble or are similar to the symptoms as to what that substance causes an overdose there we before we get back to resonance and in homeopathy we find the more a substance goes through this process of diluting and shaking diluting and shaking the more powerful it becomes, but maybe, we don't know yet, but maybe there's more of these silica fragments in the water, or they somehow get more charged the more you do this diluting and shaking, diluting and shaking, and diluting and shaking. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. Now, there also is, I want to emphasize, there is a body of both basic science research and clinical science research. Now, of course, not all of it is positive. It does, I wouldn't trust anyone 
that would ever tell me that in all research in a certain area is positive. It's not. Uh, because you always have to test certain things. And, and some of the tests that have been done on homeopathy are plain old stupid research, where they try and give one remedy to everybody with osteoarthritis or something like that. And although sometimes that can be effective, the best uh, way to practice homeopathy is with some degree of individualization of the person's symptoms and syndrome. Okay. Exactly. I mean, and, and I think that's one of the things that the medical profession took issue with because in the, in the drug culture, in the just say yes to drug culture that we have in medicine today, it, it really relies on um, conformity and uniformity. And it says that if, if you have, you know, a symptom and all people with that symptom, well, you can all take the same drug. And so what if you're taking three others and we don't know how they combine and and it to me it's criminal i mean and and this was one of the reasons i started my own center not only did homeopathy change my life along with acupuncture and chiropractic and some of these other wonderful um methods from our ancients but but i felt that it was a crime that people who were suffering so much had to continue to suffer and and die needlessly often from illnesses they needn't have degenerated from right you know it's, it's just it's a tragedy that here we have all this intelligence and resources and the most inexpensive and the safest of medicines is the one that has been kept from the majority of the American people. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I hope my book does is also gets people fascinated by history. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of everyone before us. Definitely. And unless we learn from history, we're bound to then not learn from it and repeat the same mistakes that other people have made. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the uh, points that I made in the book is this certain antagonism that orthodoxy had to homeopathy. I mean, it be- the book itself begins with a chapter called Why Homeopathy Makes Sense and Works. And that explains homeopathy. And I, I then have to explain, well, what happened to it? So I, ex- I do that in a chapter of Why Homeopathy is Hated and Vilified. And ultimately, homeopathy is threatening to both the paradigm of conventional medicine and also to the economic basis that it's, it's based on. Yeah, basically to the medical monopoly. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple when you look at it from just the lady-at-home perspective. Again, the book, folks, is called The Homeopathic Revolution by Dana Allman, U-L-L-M-A-N, Why Famous People and Cultural Heroes Choose Homeopathy. And really, there are hundreds of people you will have known most of them in at some in some form or another or heard <laughs> of them you can learn more at www.homeopathic.com that's homeopathic.com and maybe somebody in our audience is a user of homeopathy and their family or people they work with have belittled it and they don't know how to defend it well give them this book because they'll find all these famous people world leaders and others uh, just the i i mean when you look at this whole community of people what would you say beyond the fact that they all use or advocated homeopathy unites them because i see a connection between them well you know it is interesting because for instance as i was saying earlier is is that the people in America that were the abolitionists against slavery were also people for women's rights. Were also people that 
were for um, uh, transcendental thinking and freedom. Uh, it's not a big mistake that Gandhi was an advocate, as well as San Martin, who's the George Washington of South America. So, you know, often people that are, are fighters for freedom um, have been advocates. But then there are plenty of exceptions, like J.D. Rockefeller. The longest section in the entire book, besides Darwin, is of J.D. Rockefeller. Yeah, and tell that story. It's so interesting. Well, well, he lived to 98 years old, and he outlived his homeopath, who lived to only a paltry 93. Um, and uh, he used homeopathy throughout uh, the most of his life. And, uh, however, in the 20th century, the first three decades of the 20th century, he gave away about $500 million. And he wanted half of that money to go to the homeopathic institutions and organizations, and not a single cent went. It's extraordinary. They yes. so much for donor intent. Well, that's right. And I, I, it's not totally clear why he didn't know or why he didn't do anything about it. Or what he know, or what did he know, and when did he know it, or or things like that. Mm -hmm. But I give the details as to what happened with his life and his head of finance, how devious a man he was. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and then of course the, some of the key people from the AMA are, you know, uh, particularly sly dogs. And I I give the history of really how the AMA was able to get rich. People don't know, for instance, in 1899, they came up with a brilliant plan called the AMA Seal of Approval on Drugs, which didn't require any research for a drug company to do or any evidence of safety. All you had to do is advertise in every AMA national, regional, and local magazine, and you would get the AMA Seal of Approval on Drugs. Well, there we go. That's it the beginning. It was a legal form of bribery. <laughs> Unbelievable. The old guilds. <laughs> well, look, we are out of time, unfortunately, Dana. The book is just a wonderful tribute to the men and women of many generations who have made a good choice for health care and, and for, I have to also say for the environment because nothing goes into the water, nothing goes into the air, nothing that isn't good for everybody. The Homeopathic Revolution by Dana Allman. Go to www.homeopathic.com.